Hi, and welcome to PodCash, the portable CPD and best practice podcast from Cash. My name is Dawn, and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni, the fastest growing network of current and future professionals in care, health, and education. You can join us for free at www.cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists and experts, e-learning, you can get access to a discount and benefits scheme, and lots of support with career development and your future growth. Listeners who've been with us for a while might remember that in the summer we got the opportunity to attend WellFest, which was a wellbeing festival for those working in further education. Well, this winter we've got the opportunity to go again and this time West Yorkshire Learning Providers have organised a festival of wellbeing for those in further education who are currently studying. This week we hear from Louise Messier on food and movement and a selection of apprentices from across the West Yorkshire area and is hosted by Kelly and Beth from WYLP West Yorkshire Learning Providers. WYLP are a regional network established to support and advocate all providers and colleges in the further education sector. In addition, the West Yorkshire Learning Providers provide a unique provider support service to support providers on their journey to outstanding. Over to you, Kelly. And we're now going to head over to Louise Messier, who is an award-winning nutritional therapist who is going to speak to you about health, fitness and nutrition. So yeah, so my session is um, around food and how we eat for, for movement really. I'm, it is fitness, but a lot of people are put off by exercise. So we can just, if we just call it movement, because that's what we're actually designed to do rather than exercise, which I think for some people can be a bit of an intimidating word. And it is completely the wrong time of year for me to be talking about eating healthy food and exercise because of course it's that week now where everyone's just you know switching off and wanting to eat and indulge and that's absolutely fine but pretty soon we'll be into January where everyone is suddenly coming out with the New Year's resolutions and I would say joining gyms but I genuinely don't know what's allowed to be open and what isn't and what we have been so probably not joining a gym but having some sort of let's do something in January. So we thought, whilst you may not take things on for now with regard to healthy eating and fitness, hopefully, you know, some of it may still be with you in January. So there's lots of, with nutrition um, and with exercise, there's always lots of contradictory information and there's always lots of myths um, around what works and what doesn't. And there's always lots of, especially in January, miracle cures, miracle this, do this, this will work. They're all, I won't say what I really think of them, but genuinely they don't really work. So what I wanted to do was, if we can have the next slide, was to go through what we tend to do. And the things that people tend to do when they embark on any um, fitness or health kick decision to count calories, um, which I know there's a lot of science behind the food we eat, the energy in, and the energy that we expend with regard to weight management. But for me, counting calories is kind of soul destroying and not the way that I want people to view their relationship with food. Because we all have a lifelong relationship with food. There's no getting away from it. We need to have a lifelong relationship with food. So we do not want to spend that counting calories because that is really quite boring quite restrictive you know if we're ever allowed back out into the real world to go to restaurants and things we don't want to be sitting looking at a menu and wondering what we can have how many calories are in things but when we embark on something that tends to be where we start we cut calories we count calories 
and it, it needs to change we need to change our mindset into there's a lot of neuroscience which i don't have time to really go into today but rather than think about what's on the plate what i tend to do with people is think about what drives the decision to put it on the plate so all of the things that actually feed our food choices are much more to do with our mental health and our food relationship and our emotional attachment to food so we're never going to be able to change that simply by counting calories so we need to kind of work a lot more on those food choices and food decisions but when it comes to food and fitness what a lot of people also do is what we refer to as exercise empathy so I often hear people and they say I've been really good today I missed lunch and I went to the gym that's not actually very good for your metabolism it's not actually very good for your muscles your recovery you may think I've been really good because I've not had many calories and I've burnt a load of calories in the gym therefore I must be on the right track for losing weight for burning fat actually it's the opposite so it's understanding the biology of the body enough to understand that actually when we exercise empty so we're not fueling the exercise we're not going to be burning fat, which is what we want to get rid of, because the body's very clever at keeping our fat. We don't want it to, but it's very good at keeping our fat because actually for the human body, fat is an essential, it's an energy store, it keeps us warm, it insulates us, it, it cushions us, all those things, it's actually quite resourceful. So the body likes fat, we might not, but the body does. And so when we go and do a workout or go for a run or go for a long walk and we're like, really good, I'm burning loads of calories, I haven't eaten anything, therefore, you know, I'm doing really well. The body's thinking, oh my goodness, they're starving. Let's hold on to this body fat because we don't know when they're going to eat again. And so actually that makes it harder to lose the weight because the body's going into keeping your fat, which has the detrimental effect of slowing down your metabolism we want a faster metabolism because then we burn fat faster so actually those two things counting calories and then oh, i'm doing really well because i've not had much and i'm exercising really counterproductive but are often in january particularly after the, all the indulgence what people tend to do um so it's kind of trying to change that mindset and people also tend to get quite head up about protein shakes <laughs> protein shakes because everybody knows protein is really good or muscles. We always associate it with weightlifting, but it's getting more mainstream and you're going to get protein drinks, you know, in, in nearly every gym and things like that. So people tend to think, do you know what, I'll have a protein shake. But not all protein shakes are created equal. And so a lot of them have got quite poor quality protein in and a lot of sugar in. And actually the body can't cope with too much protein. So if you're getting enough in your diet, which will come to in a moment in terms of how you should be getting it, then all you end up with your protein shake is a very expensive wee because you just, you can't store it, so you just excrete it. So not to get too focused on protein shakes, which is where a lot of people tend to think, I'm all right, I'm having my protein shake, I'm doing my workout. But it's making sure again that that balance is right and that the quality of the protein shake is actually giving you what you need and not just turning into expensive wee. Another thing that people tend to do is to overdo the cardio. You know, lots of people think cardio is the answer and do loads of cardio so it's but go to the gym do three hours or two hours you know a long duration of time in the gym really really doing a lot of cardio and there's nothing wrong with cardio i love running it's my mental health you know i go for a run to to relax um and i can completely understand you know Stephen was talking about dopamine i completely understand the hormonal response that we get the feel good thing we get from cardio 
and it is quite addictive. But in terms of looking at if your goal is body shape, not the most effective form of exercise. It's also you're much more likely to injure yourself if you do loads and loads of cardio. Much more wear and tear on your joints, on your bones. If you're already carrying weight, too much weight, then you go and do a load of cardio, it's more wear and tear on your knees and your back. So not to overdo the cardio, because actually you can be a lot more effective with the time you have to spend on exercise. So you don't need to go and spend three hours. You can get a fat-burning workout in 20 minutes. So it's making sure you have that balance of time and effectiveness of exercise. I think that's where people often get it wrong, is they'll often think the longer the better, the less I eat the better, whereas actually the, the opposite of both is true. And then also people tend to focus on the scales, stand on the scales every day or every week, and gradually get more and more disheartened that the scales are not saying what they want them to say. The scales are not showing a reduction in numbers. And that can be, you think, I'm putting all this effort in, I've made all these compromises, I've made all these sacrifices, and nothing is changing on the scales. And it then starts to affect your mental health because then you start thinking, well, what's the point? You know, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not achieving it? And you could be doing it with a friend or a family member who is achieving. And then you compare, and comparison is really, really bad for us because we think, well, I've done exactly the same as them, or I've done more than them. Why are they losing weight and not me? And so then we start to, you know, really worry and question and feel guilty. Um, and I think Victoria mentioned guilt and made a note. And it applies to food and exercise as well. We can feel guilty if we miss a day exercising. We can feel guilty if we eat something that we consider, you know, a treat, a pizza or a takeaway or some cake, and then we feel guilty because we've had it. Well, actually that guilt's really counterproductive to the body, to fat metabolism, and of course to our mental health. Because what, what happens when we feel guilty and we feel anxious is we produce more of the stress hormone, cortisol. And one of the things that cortisol does is lay down additional abdominal fat. So the more we stress about not losing weight, the more cortisol, the more abdominal fat. So it's really counterproductive. And it's similar to not using exercise or food as punishment. So I know lots of people when I work with them who literally exercise after they've eaten because they feel they've eaten too much, therefore I must abuse my body, punish my body, work my body, so that the food I ate is, you know, it is kind of counterbalanced with some physical endeavor to utilize the energy. We shouldn't abuse our body. We shouldn't use exercise or food as punishment. What we should do is actually just appreciate what our body can do and try to enjoy the free feeling of movement, of exercise, of activity, of whatever you want to call it, um, rather than using it as, as a punishment. And I think that really changes our perspective. And as I said, a lot of people are, don't like the word exercise and this can happen from a very young age. And then it's automatically a barrier and it is a bad thing, it's a negative, it's a punishment. So if we can try to change that in terms of our mental health, because with exercise and food, it all has to start here before we can make physical gains and improvements. We should make sure that we fuel the exercise and recovery and that means eating the right things not exercising empty but also appreciating that our body has been worked and needs to recover 
And with things like weight training, which I'll come on to in a moment, but with things like weight training, most of the recovery, most of the gains happens after the workout. So you, your muscles continue to burn calories for up to 24 hours post a workout when you've done weight training. And what happens when you when you lift weights is basically your muscles, you know the, the feeling that it hurts? When it hurts, when you're on the last rep and it's really hurting and you're really struggling, what's happening inside your muscle is thousands of little tiny little micro tears and that's not a bad thing a big tear is a bad thing that's when you pull that's what you know but the, when you just work tiny little micro tears are happening and that's when it's really hurting and then what happens when you put the weight down and you have a drink and you have a shower and then you're you know 24 hours afterwards what happens in those muscles those little tears knit themselves back together and in that process of knitting themselves back together, the muscle becomes stronger and bigger. If you want muscular gains, I know for men often it's about gains, for women it's about sculpting, but you get what's called hypertrophy, and that is the muscle recovery. Now that muscle recovery takes calories, it takes food, it needs the right food. Otherwise what you get is you get delayed onset muscle soreness. You can't walk up and down a stair, you, know, you can't lift something. Can't stand up without sounding like you're safety. That's because those muscles are trying to repair themselves and are lacking what they need to do so. So your body aches much more than it should. So making sure that you're fueling going into the workout so that your body is not panicking and storing fat. It's using what it should be using to get you through the workout. And you will burn fat, but the body will never burn fat first it will always use its energy stores first. So you have to make sure that you are fueling it properly so that you're able to go into a fat burning zone, which is complicated, I don't have time to go into that today, but basically you will be either, you go in at a long, slow process or you go in at a high intensity. But it's simply, high intensity doesn't mean, it means it's high for you. So that can be walking fast to a lamppost and then walking slow to the next lamppost and then walking fast. That is interval training, and if that is high intensity for you, then that is fat burning for you. So it's very relative to the individual. And then making exercise count. I said, you know, we don't need to spend hours. So often people think the longer the better. Three hours has got to be better than 30 minutes. No, not necessarily. We need to make it count. If you only have half an hour, more than enough to do either a full body weight workout or a targeted body area weight workout or a full cardio workout in half an hour, completely possible. And also, you know, you probably get more from that because you've got less impact on your joints, on you, you wear and tear, you're not having to fuel it because really we should only do 90 minutes exercise before we need to refuel our glycogen stores. So then that comes back to are we fueling it and burning fat correctly or are we causing the body to panic and store fat? So if we keep within under 90 minutes, then we're okay with that. So it's making it count and then focusing on body shape, not weight. And this comes back to not standing on the scales, not panicking over what the scales say, because they can lie, particularly when it comes to exercise. So the scales will not tell you how your body composition changes. So your body composition, sorry, I'm very handy. I can't, I can't see myself either, so I don't know if I look like I'm doing sign language. Um, I can't keep them still, I have to sit on them. So, so our body is, um, when we exercise, obviously the different things in the body weigh different amounts, but fat is not very heavy. 
necessary, but muscle is, it's heavier. So when we start to make changes, the changes that we want to make comes up leaner. And that means we're also more metabolically active, which means we're burning more fat. But it also means we're heavier. So you stand on the scales, you get disheartened, you think, oh, I may as well go and eat the pizza or the curry or whatever, because nothing's changing. And actually, things are changing. The scales will never tell you that. So I have um, a fancy machine I zap people with, and it, it measures their body fat, their bone density, their hydration, etc. And it's much more accurate. And people are often really surprised because they're like, I haven't lost anything. In fact, I've gained. And then we zap them, and they see they've lost 10% body fat. So the scales will never tell you everything that you want them to. It's not to rely on them, but to start to look for the changes in yourself. Do your clothes feel different? Do you feel different? Do you feel you hold yourself better? Because when we exercise and we start to use our body the way we're meant to, particularly our core, we do everything differently. We sit up better. <laughs> so Kelly suddenly springs up. We, we change, we sit up better, we use our posture, we hold ourselves different, we appear taller. And it's those subtle things that actually are so much more important than what scales say. So those are the things that we should do against the things that normally people do do. And when we do these things, our mental health in a better place as well, because actually we're not just flogging ourselves physically and not achieving what we want to, therefore feeling miserable. We are flogging ourselves in an appropriate way to see the right results. So I always talk to people about weight training, not just cardio. Nothing wrong with cardio, and cardio is really good for you know endorphins and cardiovascular health, although weight training gets your heart rate up as well. But this enables that real targeted sculpting of the body. With cardio, what you'll often find is if you've ever tried to lose weight through cardio, you lose it from the face, if you're female, you lose it from your boobs, and you never lose it from where you want to lose it. You don't lose it from your tummy, you won't lose it from your legs. You cannot pick where it goes from, but with weightlifting, you can. So you can say, I want to wear my arms, my back, my waist, and you can target, you can sculpt the body with weight. You can actually isolate the areas and work on them. And it goes without saying that obviously it makes you leaner and stronger. Um, and we all should be strong because actually, you know, if we ever needed to, and obviously we were designed to, you know, to move and be able to lift and things for, for our own safety. But now we don't really need that because we can get in a car, we can, you know, we can we don't need to pull ourselves up cliffs and things like that. But if we ever needed to, could we, you know, could we support our body weight? Could we drag ourselves out of a situation if we needed to? Our body is sometimes the only tool that we have. So, you know, how can we use it the best way that we can? So strength is something that we should have because we don't know when we may need it. You know, it's not just about carrying bags of shopping or things like that. It's about, you know, a safety thing as well. Can we can we use our strength in a safe way if we have needed to not defend ourselves and going, yeah, I, I yeah, type thing, but just, you know, being able to use our body in the best way that we can. A great thing about weight training is your metabolism because muscles burn so many more calories when they are metabolically active. So the body burns more calories at rest, which means that technically 
you can eat more, which is why, you know, athletes eat so much, why they eat so many calories a day. Now, obviously, they're burning it in their physical activity as well, but their body needs it because it is so metabolically active. Because remember those muscles knitting themselves together? They're constantly repairing. They're constantly active. And they're constantly using calories. So it means that our what's called our basal metabolic rate is increased, it's higher, and we need to eat more. <laughs> but that's obviously we need to do that in a healthy way. <laughs> because we do get athletes who, when they stop training, suddenly become type 2 diabetic because they're still eating 7,000 calories a day and are not doing the training as well. So we do need to obviously balance that carefully as well. And it is less impact on your joints with the correct form. I am a stickler for correct form because clearly if you're lifting weights with bad form, you can do yourself damage. Um, so it's always about doing it in the right way um, and not overdoing it, not trying to lift too much too soon. With weightlifting, it's a gradual thing because those muscles cannot repair themselves if you go in there and you know you go and try and lift far too much too early, you've got to build it up. And then the body actually adapts very quickly and you get stronger very quickly, but you have to, you have to go slowly. Don't just go to the gym and please don't go and just pick up a load of 20 kilogram dumbbells and try, you know, and try working out because you think, oh, Louise said, no, let's do it gradually. And I always talk about women and why women should weight train. Because never, when I was a personal trainer, I had this conversation that, oh no, I'm not doing that because I don't want to bulk up. And I don't want, you know, my arms are already big. I don't want to get bigger. And there's this sort of perception that weight training will make you really big because we see, you know, we see professional weightlifters being quite, you know, obviously quite big. There's a lot that goes into that, you know, and you're never likely to do that because you're never likely to spend that much time doing what they do. Plus, being female, we're not as likely to ever bulk up that way because we're missing the testosterone. So we're never likely to kind of bulk up. So I always say specifically to females, men never really is encouraging to weight train. That generally is their preferred thing. They, they don't mind doing that, they're not scared of it. They, you know, they will happily go to the weight area. But women are often a bit more, hmm, I'm not sure about that. But there's many reasons why we should. And obviously the main one is if you're worried about body shape, this is the easiest way to change your body shape. Cardio will not do it the way you want it to. Um, strength, strong, not skinny is a big thing, you know, about females being, there's this whole thing obviously in the media about females being tiny and slim but there's a, a good counter argument coming out now that actually yes be strong not skinny so whilst they may be tiny and slim they're also healthy and strong so there's a difference in that kind of body shape that the media are presenting and I would rather see somebody slim and strong than just skinny because they don't eat because of what the media portrays this thin female as. So I've mentioned BMR, basal metabolic rate, and how it makes you burn more fat. And um, bone density, the reason why this is more important for women is we do lose our bone density um, a lot more than men do. Um, so we lose about five to six percent a year as we age, so from 35 onwards, it accelerates. So we lose even more of our bone density. And then at whatever age women go through the menopause, which can start quite early, it accelerates and we lose up to 20% of our bone density. Really, really big amount of bone density loss, if we consider, you know, the importance of that with things like falling over, you know, just general wear and tear. So if we can, it doesn't matter if you've never done it, 
you can always make an improvement. If you have never lifted a weight in your life or you've never done any exercise, it's never too late. Even if you're already going through the menopause, it's still not too late. So any female relatives you know, um, you always encourage them to lift some weights because it's never too late to start to make a change to prevent further loss and to prevent the acceleration of the bone density loss. And again, Often for women, when I work with women, they have more time pressures. I may be completely stereotyping here, but they do tend to have more time pressures. And so this is a more time effective workout. If you have 20 minutes, you can still do it, as opposed to having to find two hours to do it. Um, and it helps us in pregnancy and labor as well. It makes an easier labor. Obviously there's lots of other considerations, but in a normal straightforward labor, if you have a stronger, healthier body, it makes it easier to go through labor because obviously there's a lot of work involved in having a child. So the stronger your body and your skeletal system and your muscular system, the easier that process then is. So lots of benefits to weight training. It's not very complicated. It's made very complicated because a lot of companies want to make a lot of money about making it seem extremely complicated, but it really isn't. Protein. Protein is what helps those little tears in the muscles. Protein is what builds that. Protein is what fuels our muscle recovery. Protein and complex carbs and fats, all of which fuel our actual workout. So as long as we have all of those things in our diet, so all the things that are there are obviously all the healthy versions of protein, complex carbs and fats, you can have things that are not in that, you know, what you'd call the, the healthiest categories, because there is nothing wrong with us enjoying food. I never say to people not to eat takeaways, not to have cake, not to have biscuits, but always to consider, is it worth me having it? Is it, going back to that mindfulness thing, am I going to eat this and really enjoy it? Or am I just eating it for the sake of it? And I know people here will be like, where have they gone? Oh, I ate them all. But they've not even tasted them. So that's not mindful enjoyment of that food. That's just habitual consumption. And we're not even tasting it. We're not getting any benefit from it. So I don't say to people, you know, cut everything out. Just ask yourself, talk to the food. I often say this and people think I'm bonkers. Talk to the food, what are you gonna do for me? Is it worth me eating you? You know, are you gonna, am I gonna regret having this? And then that, that regret will feel more abdominal fat because I'm gonna feel stressed about it and produce cortisol. And the second it takes you to have that conversation, you've probably gone off the idea of eating it anyway. So have that conversation with the food, talk to your food, have that conversation. Is it worth it? If I'm gonna have it and really enjoy it, fine. That's mindful eating, you're getting some pleasure. That's absolutely fine, don't deny yourself that pleasure. We have a lifelong relationship with food, enjoy it. Um, but just always question, is it worth it? And never underestimate hydration as well, because most people are dehydrated. I'd say 99% of people are dehydrated. So more water, basically, just water, plain water. None of these weird artificial sweetener things in there, just plain water is best. I know sleep came up. I can't remember if it was in Victoria or Stephen's talk. We completely underestimate just how important sleep is to everything to do with our health. Um, I've been talking a lot this year, unsurprisingly, on immunity um, and the role of our immune system. It's suddenly really important to everybody. Um, but our, our sleep is a factor in every other aspect of our health, including weight loss. So if we don't sleep well, 
we're not going to lose as much weight if we're trying to lose weight. We're not going to burn fat if we're trying to burn fat. And we're going to eat more rubbish because when we're tired, our hunger hormone ghrelin is increased. And ghrelin as a hunger hormone, or gremlin, as I call it, makes you crave high carb, high fat, high sugar foods. So the more tired you are, and if this is a cycle of not sleeping well consistently, then you're consistently going to crave more high sugar, high carb, high fat foods because you're in a cycle of not sleeping and therefore eating the wrong food the next day. But then that food helps to fuel a poor night's sleep for that night as well. So it becomes a vicious cycle. But we need to sleep well. I mentioned the muscle repair, but all of our body cells need to repair. And rest and repair tends to take place when we are asleep. So up here, you know, all the cognitive things that happen in a day, filing memories, storing information, processing things, all of that happens when we're asleep. All the body repair happens when we're asleep. And so things like weight loss are really key to getting a good night's sleep because not only does it help the hunger hormones the next day, but it helps our mental health. And our mental health and food are really closely linked. So if we're tired and sad and a bit, ugh, we're going to crave the wrong types of food. And we must include rest days as well. I know some people, exercise is addictive and I get very grumpy if I don't exercise. I'm really grumpy. I, you know, I'm unbearable. And so I have a spin bike in the garden and if I just have half an hour, I'll just jump on there and, and go half an hour. And my mood is completely changed. But we do need to remember that whilst it's addictive, we shouldn't feel guilty if we have a day off because actually our body needs that time to repair and recover and restore itself and we shouldn't we, we shouldn't repeat things so if we do like a weight workout target different areas of the body to give like your arms a rest so if you do arms one day do legs the next day then your arms are having a rest day so try to alternate to give your body time to repair itself and don't feel guilty over having rest so, um, being outside is really nature's gym. Um, we don't need to go to a gym. In fact, I don't even know where we're allowed to go to gyms. If we are at the moment, I have lost. I don't know where we are with that. But outside, nature has provided so much for us to to do and to use and to utilise. So, going for a walk with an incline, um, going for a walk with some undulation underfoot, so climbing over things. All of those things are brilliant for just being outside and using your body in the way, you know, that nature can allow us to do. We do get vitamin D, not at the moment, unfortunately, but between March and October, we are exposed to vitamin D, natural vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, and that's really important for fat metabolism. Um, but also for our immune system and our mood. So if we're vitamin D deficient, which is why a lot of people get sad, seasonal affective disorder, we are we become our mood is lower. So when we're more deficient in vitamin D, our mood is lower. And there's lots of direct and indirect links with our weight and vitamin D, but a low mood tends to increase our weight because if we have an emotional attachment to food, we will crave the wrong foods, we will not sleep well, etc. etc. So there is a direct and indirect link with that. Being outside in, in any form of nature almost immediately reduces our blood pressure, almost immediately reduces cortisol, the stress hormone, and makes us feel more relaxed. Just taking a few deep breaths around trees or water or whatever your thing is, just being outside in anything that is natural makes us instantly feel more relaxed. And it's free. 
don't need to pay to go outside. Um, it may be one of the few things we're allowed to do is to go outside. Um, so to make use of, of just being outside and get the benefits of nature as well as the benefits of moving. So yes, movement, we are designed to move. Humans are designed to move. There's been lots of talk, I can't remember if it's Stephen or Victoria, talking about how the world around us has changed so much, but we biologically have not. So the human body was designed to move and we have sort of become more and more sedentary. We sit to work, we sit to drive, we sit to watch TV. We've stopped moving as much as we were designed to and with that is coming a whole host of health problems. There's musculoskeletal problems, there's metabolic disorders, there's cardiovascular problems, there's all sorts of problems involved with sitting. In America, they even have the term sitting disease and all the things that are associated with being sedentary. So we are designed to move. You don't need to call it exercise. If it's a word that is intimidating, but we do need to move and we do need to move each day. So then why should we move? All these reasons. There's so many reasons why we should move. Exercise, movement, activity, whatever you want to call it, helps our immune system. We are clearly in the middle of a pandemic. We need our immune system. Our immune system um, has an immunological age, and that can be very different to your biological age. And one of the factors that increases your immunological age is whether you are sedentary or active. So a sedentary person would have an older immunological age than somebody who is active. So it's really important that we just move because there's a big link there with our immunity as well, which clearly we need. <laughs> and mental health movement, activity, exercise, all creates endorphins, creates dopamine, which is the pleasure and reward center of the brain, which means it's addictive, which means we keep going back for more. Um, but it's, it's a good thing because it's, it makes us feel, have those feel good hormones. And the skeletal system, we are not designed to sit like this. We are designed to be upright and to move. And so all the aches and pains and tensions and joint problems and things all come from sitting too much. So we need to utilize the skeleton in the way it's meant to use and actually move it. Um, cardiovascular system, so clearly the heart pumping, the heart is very inactive when we're just sitting at a desk and sitting in a car. And, you know, we need to, within a safe range to what's safe to an individual, get to the maximum heart rate we can get to at whatever level of exercise we're at to get out of breath, to boost the cardiovascular system and to get us out of breath and active in whatever way we can. Um, fertility, huge links with the fact that infertility is increasing with um, the, both the Western diet and the links with being more sedentary. So if you are of an age where you are still wanting to have children, um, there are lots of lifestyle factors that influence on the, the likelihood of fertility or infertility. And you know, it's really important that we don't just think, oh, that's for when I'm older and I'll think about that then. That we think about sort of things. When Stephen was talking about planning, it may seem a long way in the future, um, but how you live your life now an impact on some things that may happen in the future so if we can live our life in a healthier way in terms of moving and eating well then the things that we won't want to happen in the future are more likely to happen and we're more likely to be healthier into our old age as well which links to the increased lifespan and increased longevity right that's great thank you very much so i'm going to um 
move along to Beth and the apprentices now. So it's time for the hear from your peers section. So Beth, it's over to you. Um, so yeah, um, hear from your peers. Um, if I could introduce Beth, Georgia and Ibrahim, um, I'll just ask you a few questions and just tell us a bit about you. Um, so if you want to unmute yourself, uh, put your camera on if you want to. Um, and then just what is your current job role or apprenticeship that you're doing right now? So yeah, my name's Ibrahim. Um, I did a apprenticeship in financial services. Um, I started in August 2017. Um, I finished in February 2019. Um, I'm still a customer service advisor, but um, in March 2019, I actually moved into financial crime. I'm studying at the moment, so I'm currently studying a level six diploma in anti-money laundering. Um, I was meant to stay in financial crime, but because of the pandemic, um, because also I was on a contract um, in the financial crime team, it came to an end in October. So I moved back into my um, my substantive role, which was in customer services. So it was a kind of a good thing because the fact that it was like a contract within the company, you could all you can always fall back into your substantive roles in the role you were doing initially. Um, so that's a good thing for me. But of course, I would rather have stayed in financial crime. Um, <laughs> I uh, was yeah. a financial crime analyst, but I've gone back to being a customer service advisor. And what about you, Bethany? So I work at the Link Training Academy in Huddersfield, um, and we are a training provider, and we specialise in apprenticeships and adult learning. Um, I did an apprenticeship in business administration, and I started in October last year, um, and I've recently just gone through my endpoint assessment. And uh, my role here is basically just academy support, helping with um, a lot of the admin in the office, the paperwork, registers, tracking attendance and that sort of thing. Oh, nice one. Um, so how have you been carrying out? Your... Oh, sorry, no, Georgia. Hi, yes, I'm Georgia. Um, I work for Woodsbean Training in Huddersfield. Um, so my current job role is I work in contract compliance, but I'm also a Cognizant officer as well um, within Woodsbean. Yeah, so how have you all been carrying out your role during the pandemic then? Has it been working from home or a bit of a blended approach? Have you been in the office the whole time? Um, I was furloughed for three months and then I was part-time furloughed, um, so half in the office, half not. Um, and then in about, I think it was August, I came back full-time um, and obviously, so I've been in the office now, but we have just been having to apply by the social distance guidelines um, obviously make the class size smaller um, masks when we're walking around the building um, hand sanitise when you come in the building What about you Ibrahim? Yeah, so you, myself, yeah I've been working it? from home for a long time uh, working from home um, there are still people within our building but compared to what it normally is it's very little there are about 200 people in the building at the moment but that's nothing compared to the 2,000 people that are normally in the building. Um, so, yeah, most of us are working from home. Georgia, what about yourself? Um, I got furloughed for the first month of lockdown, but then I actually returned back to work and I was actually one of the first um, staff to return back to work other than obviously um, our director and my manager, which was already working throughout the lockdown. But um, I returned back to work um, and started working in the office, but I got given a totally different job role on my return. How how did that? How did you handle that then? Were it big big change? Were it a change? You welcomed? What what was sort of the process behind that? Well, at first I obviously returned to work. Um, I did quite struggle to adapt to a new job role um, on my return, but this was something 
that my job role was something that got brought in since the pandemic happened, um, which were our AEB short course programmes, which I did take a role in and I now do that full time as part of my job role. Nice. Um, Have any of you faced any challenges during the pandemic, whether that be sort of personal and how you overcome them or whether that be through work? Um, I think just seeing family and friends in general. not being able to see loved ones. I mean, I saw my, I usually see my grandma every weekend and I wouldn't be able to do that. Obviously, just seeing your friends in general. So it is a struggle. Have you sort of done any, like, found any coping mechanisms? Yeah. Like FaceTime? Quizzes online, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's easy to stay in contact, isn't it, now, with all the yeah. technology that we've got, so. Yeah, yeah, I think same for everyone. I think everyone's sort of missing family and that now. What about you, Abraham? Have you seen any, faced any difficulties or challenges? Yeah, exactly the same thing, yeah, more or less socialising because of course we were at work, we used to go out, most of us were friends anyway, um, so we used to hang out after work sometimes as well, so yeah, that, that's been the main thing. Apart from that, of course, the fact that my um, role in financial crime was stopped because of the pandemic and because they didn't really have much work. But the good thing about that is uh, the way I cope with that is because the, what they've done is they've kind of started to restructure the department in financial crime. So there are more opportunities that are coming on a permanent basis. So now it's just a matter of actually applying for them and getting them. Yeah, in Georgia? Uh, yeah, obviously the same without seeing family and friends. But I think within work, um, bigger workloads with obviously people being furloughed or people working from home. Um, and me being one of the first people back in the office, obviously workloads were a lot bigger then, and there wasn't, wasn't as many people there to um, obviously help out, but meetings with my manager and obviously a support system put in place. Um, on my other staff's return, the workload was obviously then shared out, so that was obviously a challenge I had to overcome at that time. Yeah, and obviously like prioritising tasks and things like that, was that something new to you or that is that something that's always been part of your job role? Um, obviously, being an apprentice, um, I wasn't given like many tasks, like big tasks as what I was when I did return to work, but um, at first, yeah, I did struggle, but then when I got more like support and I actually got to grips with the actual job that I was doing, um, I found it a lot easier then, obviously. And just with that um, and sort of the coping mechanisms for the challenges you might face, have you found any to be successful? So any little kind of hidden gems or anything like that? I think I found prioritising speaking to certain family members helped me, um, especially when you're not allowed to go see them as much or you're not supposed to go see them. Um, So I think kind of just prioritising who I speak to helped me a little bit. Has anyone got found anything that was successful for them? Um, yeah, I think what helped me was definitely speaking to my manager more regularly and having obviously meetings with her um, regarding what I was struggling with and what I found easy and best for me because then obviously that helped and it took like a lot of the pressure if I felt like I couldn't do something. Obviously she was always there to help me so that was a big coping mechanism when I had such a big workload to do. Ibrahim, Bethany, have you got anything? Uh, I just think when we was finally, obviously, back when we sort of came out of the first lockdown a bit and we were allowed to go see people in the gardens and obviously social distance and stuff, I think it was just to even just see people in the flesh and actually be able to see people not over a screen was good. Mm. Um, I think, again, getting back to work in that after the first sort of lockdown thing brought you back to a lot of normality. Yeah. Um, it made everything feel a bit real again, so I think that was a good way to cope. 
Um, I was also volunteering for the NHS as well a lot in the first lockdown. So that was just getting out of the house, even if you just do people's food shopping for them. Um, yeah, oh, that's great. Just not, not looking at the first, the first um, four walls around you. <laughs> Ibrahim, have you got anything? Yeah, the, with myself, it, it, I didn't really have much spare time. That was a good thing because, of course, when you have spare time, that's when you start like wondering, oh, I haven't spoken to this person, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. But with myself, because uh, I've got a full-time role and then I'm also a trustee for Age UK, so um, with that, because of all, co- all everything that happened with COVID, we, have to re- we had to literally restructure the whole of our uh, charity. Uh, we changed it into five different home sites. Um, so that was really challenging, but I found out very good. And also because of the fact that we could actually help people within the local community as well. So we had different projects going on where we were helping um, the elderly and people that are vulnerable. Um, so yeah, to be honest, I think that's the way I cope with it because there wasn't a lot of spare time in that sense to kind of think about what you're missing out on. Yeah, that's great. Um, and just sort of finally, obviously looking after your mental health is super important. How have you found looking after your physical health? I know for me, I'm heavily, you know, I'm quite an active person. I love going out, running and exercising. And I think I struggled a little bit when the gyms first shut. So I, I actually then started to run a lot more than what I usually would do. And I think that helped me just making sure that I've got the balance right of looking after my mental health, but as well as my physical health. And what sort of did you lot do to sort of manage your physical health? I think I, obviously I was doing the NHS uh, volunteering, so that, was a bit of a walking around a supermarket wasn't the best physical health but um still walking the dog every day walking the dog every day um finding new spots that i never even really knew about um to walk the dog so that was nice um get out of the house a bit yeah nice ibrahim george did you yeah i used to walk to work and walk back so that was kind of taken away from us um the fact that we wasn't really furloughed so there was literally no point of us actually going to work at all we were sending laptops to work from home so yeah and yeah, also when the, when when we wasn't in lockdown, then I did used to go gym as well occasionally. So yeah, it, it was kind of all taken away. So mainly what I would do is just go for a walk. Um, there were occasions where I was walking for nearly an hour. I go to like different different parks around here. Um, but yeah, I was listening earlier about steps and stuff. I actually when they were talking, I, I went through my uh, step history. Actually, last year I walked on average about nine and a half thousand steps in a year on average and this year is down to 5,000 so that is very bad for me because uh, I like to walk a lot more than that. Um, yeah I think throughout when I was furloughed for the month I think I found it a lot um, harder because I didn't really have the motivation to like go out and do stuff but I think returning to work gave me like, a bit more motivation to actually like go out and exercise and on my dinner breaks I'd just go for like use half of my dinner breaks to go just on a walk just to get fresh air just to like sort of mo- motivate myself a bit more than what I was in lockdown I think. Well no thank you very much um, for coming on to speak today I think it's nice for people to hear from you know younger people on how they're, co- how they're coping and cope during this situation. Thank I just you. want to say a massive thank you to everybody um, who's taken part in the um, Wellfest for Learners. There's been some absolutely brilliant speakers, some really good tips um, for keeping yourself safe, um, during this time, both you, you know, from mental well-being point of view to your physical well-being too, um, and I think there's a lot that everybody could take away from this. So thank you very much for attending, and thanks to you at home. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast. Don't forget, for more great content tailored to everyone in the care and education sectors, you can join our membership network.
cashalumni.org.uk. It's free to join and you'll get access to articles from subject specialists, careers advice, job vacancies and our member benefits scheme. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of Podcash, please get in touch with us through the contact details on the Cash Alumni website. Until next time, take care.